Let's talk about inclusion and inclusive foreign policy when we talk about feminist foreign policy as well, not to repeat the blunders of the past. Feminist foreign policy needs to imply structural, painful change, and you will offend people because we offend those in power. Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. Feminist foreign policy is gaining momentum around the world. Although it's a relatively new concept in security and defense circles, the idea of putting women's rights on the global agenda is not. 25 years ago, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action set out a vision of equal rights, freedom, and opportunities for women everywhere no matter their circumstances. Women's empowerment and gender equality are also part of the UN's sustainable development agenda. But looking at foreign policy through a decidedly feminist lens was unheard of until Sweden announced it would adopt a feminist foreign policy in 2014. Then Foreign Minister Margot Wallström described it as standing against the systemic and global subordination of women and a precondition for achieving Sweden's wider foreign development and security policy objectives. In 2017, Canada set up its feminist foreign assistance policy, and announcements by France and Luxembourg followed in 2019. Mexico is the latest country to adopt a feminist foreign policy earlier this year, and just last month, a majority in the European Parliament voted for a gender-equal foreign and security policy. But what does that mean? What is feminist foreign policy? What exactly is feminist about it? And why is it important that we have it? I put these and other questions to Nina Bernading from the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy and Shada Islam. We also discussed intersectionality, the need for broader inclusion in foreign policy, what an EU feminist foreign policy could and should look like, and our admiration for New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Shada Islam is a senior advisor on Asia and Africa to the Europe and the World program at the European Policy Center, member of the EPC Strategic Council, and a well-known commentator on EU affairs. Nina Bernading is a co-founder and director at the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. She's a peace support professional with experience in working on track one processes in East Africa, and she specializes in dialogue, mediation, and natural resource governance. Nina, I'm, I'm going to start with you. So what, what is feminist foreign policy? What makes it different from quote-unquote regular foreign policy and uh, why is it important? Thank you um, and thank you for, for having me today. I'm really thrilled to, uh, to be here with you. And yes, you're obviously right. It is a, it is a rather new concept. Um, so I think officially it was introduced in, onto the political stage in 2014 when um, then Foreign Ministry, uh, Minister of Sweden, Margaret Wallström, announced that from now on, um, Sweden would follow feminist principles when it comes to foreign and security policies, and that was really a game changer. So it is, it is still um, a new, um, a new concept. Um, what is it? So there is not one blueprint of a feminist foreign policy definition, but um, to put it um, really simple, um, it is a, it is a foreign policy that acknowledges that there are structural um, inequalities and discriminations within our societies. So not only, but also uh, between genders and that a feminist foreign policy would do everything it can with all the tools that are available uh, to foreign and security policy 
to overcome these structural inequalities. And in doing so, it focuses on the politically marginalized and their perspectives need. And I think this is also the biggest difference um, to regular um, foreign policy, as, as you put it, um, that really the focus is on, on understanding how foreign policy decisions impact the already marginalized in our societies and how we can make sure that we have policies that, that will help them and, and counter structural discrimination. And, and why is it necessary? I think because we all have the right to live in a world that actually is made also for us and that we all have the same rights to um, shape political processes and um, impact decisions that also impact us in the end. Um, but there's also another layer and we, we say it is also um, necessary to, if you want to contribute to lasting peace, because there's a lot of research, in particular feminist research, that highlights that a, a state is more peaceful when they have a higher level of um, gender equality within a country. And so there is this direct link. So, and this is why we think it is important. Shada, do you see on the ground that there is maybe a, a broad agreement on, on a definition? Because Nina just mentioned, yeah, there isn't one definition of feminist foreign policy, but is there maybe, you know, some, some commonalities or is, uh, is the add-on feminist being used to describe different things here? So you're talking about the add women and stir approach or pink washing, as some people call it. Um, Rebecca, I think what Nina has said is very important, and I think it's really, really good and very valuable that we're talking about uh, feminist foreign policy and we're talking about underrepresentation of women in foreign policy structures, and we're talking about increased uh, focus on women uh, and, and you know their rights, their obligations, but also their vulnerabilities um, and the role they play in countries uh, when we talk about foreign policy. That's extremely important. And, you know, having watched this for many, many years, I'm, I'm really, really delighted that finally, you know, we're talking about some very key issues. But I, I have three, uh, three points to make, which I think go beyond um, what is strictly in the West seen as a feminist foreign policy. I'm not denying that uh, definition, but I, I would like to add to it. And I think from my point of view, it's inclusion, uh, inclusiveness, if you like, and, and diversity uh, that are very important. I think feminine foreign policy, as I see it now being, you know, sort of uh, defined and then actually implemented, I think misses the point because often it's still men who are actually putting this foreign policy into operation. They often misses the point that we're talking about inclusion in a broad sense and diversity. We're not just talking about bringing women in and then still having the structures <clears throat> and the mandates defined by men. So it's, it's and, and so we we're living, and, and I think feminist foreign policy, uh, Nina and Rebecca, especially necessary in today's world, because what do we see around us? We see uh, zero-sum games, geopolitical power games, confrontation, win-lose, uh, uh, binary choices. Um, all of these are very masculine-driven, very macho-driven. And of mm. course, Donald Trump being in the White House has accelerated that and you know, made that much more defined and made it uh, kosher, in a sense, uh, made it you know, um, acceptable to, to run foreign policy. In, in those ways. And that is absolutely against the ethos of a feminist foreign policy. And also, um, two quick points. So we, you know, we're using war metaphors, war on terror, war on hunger, war on this, war on that. And I would like that. I think metaphors, war metaphors are only meant for wars and not for uh, other, other operations that we engage in. So you have to look at the world today. You have to look at the broader picture. Foreign policy is also about climate change. It's about pandemics. 
It's about fighting poverty. That's the inclusion that I'm talking about. And finally, as Nina said, it's about um, commitment, the long-term commitment to peace. Uh, and, and also, finally, I'd say bringing in civil society. So no more of this um, pink washing that a lot of our uh, leaders and ministers tend to do, you know, bring women in and then you're safe. Um, that's not it. I think if the structures are still established and the thinking and the mandates are established by men, uh, then we have a long way to go before we can call these foreign policies uh, feminist. Yeah, Shada, and I want to quickly follow up on that because you already mentioned that um, it is sometimes perceived as, a, as maybe a, a Western um, idea, and it is maybe one of the criticisms um, that some people have leveled against the concept or the idea of feminist foreign policy is that, um, for instance, when it comes to um, uh, encouraging women empowerment, there are some who argue that the singular focus on, on women and girls reinforces the binary view of gender and that it actually undermines efforts to overcome Eurocentric and cisgender presentations of feminism. And so considering that most of the countries who are developing or have developed a feminist foreign policy are Western, I mean, we're talking about countries like Canada, France, also Mexico, aren't we maybe again forcing Western ideas upon non-Western countries as well intentioned as those ideas might be? So I'm going to take another approach, Rebecca. I'm going to say to you that uh, this is not West, uh, Western approach because a number of uh, cultures and civilizations across the world have very empowered women and believe in the empowerment of women and where there are women leaders at all levels, uh, at, at the at local levels, regional levels, state levels. It's just that they're not defining it as feminist, but they're working very hard for the same goals and with the same uh, diversity and inclusion that I talked to you about. And I, I think so. We live in a world, as I said, where we make these um, distinctions between us and them. And I would say that in this, uh, in this sector, in this area that we're talking about, leadership, female leadership in foreign policy, I don't see a difference. I mean, we've had women leaders in Eastern uh, Asian countries. We've had them in Africa, Latin America. So you can't say that it is a Western approach. And there are real feminist, um, black feminist uh, women and men uh, in Africa. There are Asian feminists, Muslim feminists, you know. Um, all, of these, uh, all of these intersectionality, if you like, is out there. It's just that we have such a narrow view of the world that we don't see it and we don't recognize it. So for me at the moment, the real danger really is that we are living in a world in transition. We have to adjust and accommodate to a new world order, and a world order where the Eurocentric patriarchal approach, if you like, is being um, questioned, is being challenged uh, by other countries, uh, by people, uh, by, by technology. And um, so I would hope that this feminist foreign policy that we're talking about is, as I said, a broader a vision of security, broader vision of what peace is, a broader vision of what development is, and gets away from this white savior approach um, and gets away from neo-colonial legacies. And I'm sorry to say, and um, you know, I'll be criticized for saying so, but much of European Union foreign policy still has to cut itself off, disconnect from history of colonialism and this um, white savior myth that continues, especially uh, as you've seen in our development policies. And then maybe, Rebecca, may I add to this? Because I couldn't agree more with uh, what Shara just said. Um, uh, said. Um, and I think, although I've said in the beginning there's not a blueprint of feminist foreign policy, there is 
a consensus among feminist foreign policy, uh, among feminist civil society, that there are certain principles um, that should be included in any feminist approach to foreign security policy. And um, and then as both of you mentioned, obviously intersectionality is a, is a very important one, but also, as you've just mentioned, the the division between us and them. And I think this is very crucial that it's a patriarchal uh, tool of dividing us and into groups and and overcome is um, important for a feminist foreign policy. And also, um, a feminist foreign policy always needs to be human rights-based. And this includes the rights of everyone. And also um, includes, for example, the rights um, of women to have legal and safe abortion. So it's not that there are some rights that are more important than others. So, so I think this is, this is a very important discussion that we're having. And I just wanted to make two other points on empowerment of women, because we are very critical of this approach. Because in our opinion, it's not about fixing the women. It's not about um, that the women need to be louder or better or that they need to be braver or whatever. It needs the structures needs to be fixed and then women have the same opportunities. And empowerment, if we talk about empowerment of women, we reinforce this notion that women just need to improve in one way or another. Um, and then because you've you've asked the question about whether or not it's a Western concept and and I, I don't want to deny at all that there is huge issues in, in implementing the intersectional approach to the discussion at the moment and that it's still white dominated and that there's a lot of work in particular we as white people need to do. But I just want to caution that this argument and which you've just listed in saying that feminism is a Western concept, that that is an argument that is being used by religious and anti-gender actors across the world at the moment um, in order to mobilize against gender equality, against women's rights. So I would just be really cautious to not reinforce this narrative that the Putins and the Orbans and the Trumps of the world are currently using in order to actually limit our rights. And if I could just come in on that and absolutely agree with Nina, I mean, she's talked about uh, Orban and, uh, you know, we have the same kind of uh, sentiments uh, and backlash, pushback against women's rights, gender gender equality in, in inside Europe. And you know, this is being, if I could say, this is reinforcing a number of uh, bigots, I'm going to use the word, and, uh, and, you know, reinforcing prejudices across the world, because Europe is a norm setter. And when European leaders speak in those terms, it resonates across the world and reinforces other powers that are trying to do the same thing. And I've been actually appalled at the fact that at the United Nations, there has been really a reinforcement of anti-gender equality uh, discussions and discourse. And we as the European Union, we have to push back against that. But can we really do so authentically, you know, and genuinely and forcefully if we have these uh, elements within our own midst? So what we're doing here by not shutting them up, I'm sorry to say, and making sure that they, you know, are, are sanctioned for some of their ideas is actually, um, I, I would say, eroding our credibility as Europeans on the world stage. Some also say that uh, feminist foreign policy is also about putting more women into powerful positions. Now, Shada, in, in one of your, your recent papers for Friends of Europe called Feminism is Not a Numbers Game, It's About Inclusion, um, you say that that conversation about women in power, indeed, shouldn't just be a numbers game, but it should go beyond gender equality and what you alluded to before, that it should include or that it should embrace inclusion um, in the broadest sense. But isn't it also important to have more women in these positions of power? I mean, to have more Federica Mogherini's and Catherine Ashton's? 
It's important to have Catherine Lagarde and Angela Merkel as well. Yes, no, yeah. absolutely. Look, absolutely. I think it is important that there are more women in positions of power. Absolutely important. But my experience is that those women have to be brave enough to think differently, to break the shackles of patriarchy, if you like, the shackles of groupthink, uh, the shackles of consensus. You know, they have to dare to be different. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be uh, a woman leader or a woman, let's say, foreign minister and to break the kind of, you know, groupthink, one-dimensional thinking, the simple narratives, uh, the single simple narratives that dominate foreign policy at the moment. We are good, they are bad. We are nice, they are nasty. You know, this kind of uh, binary distinctions, which intelligent people the world over are saying no, no, no to, you have to stand up for that. And it isn't easy. So my, my, my story really is gender parity, very good. Um, you know, it's important, very important. But let's also make sure, first of all, that intersectional approach is there. So the people, the women being brought in are not only white women, sorry to be so blunt, but also reflect the diversity of our societies. And the fact is, it's not just a question of representation. It's a question of content. If you have diversity of thought, you bring in a multidimensional, multifaceted approach to foreign policy. Otherwise, you're just going and doing the same old, same old all the time. In today's world, we need authentic thinking and we need fresh thinking. So that's my point is let's be let's talk about inclusion and inclusive foreign policy when we talk about feminist foreign policy as well, not to repeat the blunders of the past. And uh, Nina, now, maybe to make it a little bit more um, concrete, so what would an EU feminist foreign policy look like? I think that could be a, a week-long discussion about what a feminist <laughs> foreign policy should look like for the EU. And, and again, I just wanted to highlight that, obviously, I'm happy to answer the question, but I think the question should be posed in particular to people who are impacted by an, an EU um, foreign policy. So the non-Europeans who are um, impacted by the decisions that are being made in Brussels um, should actually um, answer these questions. And we, with the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy and commissioned by the, by the Greens in the European Parliament, we published a, a study on what a feminist foreign policy could look like for the EU this year. So it's available on our website, um, which I think could answer your question much more in detail. But um, there, we've highlighted a couple of issues. And I think the biggest issue that we've seen within the EU is that they have a very binary and very exclusive understanding of gender. Um, and so the first step of actually having a feminist foreign policy at the EU level would be to implement an, an inclusive intersectional understanding of gender that also recognizes that gender is not just gender identity, but that it's a way of structuring um, activities and relationships within our society based on what we pursue, uh, perceive as male and as female. A second point would be to actually really follow the goal of gender equality, that that is the, the overarching goal of all foreign and security policy um, of the EU. And then thirdly, and I think also most importantly, is to reverse the militarization of the EU security policy. Because what we have seen, that there has been a lot of progress um, in terms of gender equality um, and also the women, peace and security agenda at the EU level, but at the same time, we're seeing an increasing militarization of, uh, of security. And we see that humanitarian crisis, like, for example, the migration crisis, so-called migration crisis at the southern borders of the EU, they're perceived as a security crisis, but they're humanitarian crisis in the first place. But we only look through them through the security angle, and that, that needs to change. 
And I think also it was already mentioned, but I think the cooperation with civil society is just crucial. Um, and there are a couple of concrete recommendations that we make in order to, to improve the, um, the cooperation with civil society. Because, I mean, if we see who is actually pushing for social change across the world, it is women and it is feminist. And this is no coincidence. Um, so the EU would, would do good in, in, in doing better in cooperation with civil society. Shada, do you think that the EU could adopt a feminist foreign policy? Is that possible given the current state of EU foreign policy in general? A couple of things. Um, and, and I totally agree with what Nina said. You know, I, I, I think that uh, at its heart, at its core, uh, with its so-called normative soft power, the EU is basically a feminist organization. If you take the idea of diversity, inclusion, and uh, the fact that women are empathetic. That is the structure and the basis. I think the fact that Europe came together, and I can get quite emotional about this uh, after the war, is a very feminist thing to do. Uh, you know, reconcile, bring together, embrace, and create a family. And, uh, and I, I think European foreign policy at its heart, with this soft, soft power approach, um, has been, and it is admired across the world, Rebecca, Uh, for its um, soft normative regulatory power. Um, and, and that's very, very important to remember. So at its, at its essence, um, if you look at it from my point of view and not just about the numbers game, uh, the thinking behind, um, if you like, the founding fathers um, is very empathetic, is about compassion, uh, is about inclusion. But <laughs> obviously we, really, we live in the real world And the real world means that, of course, we're trying to play, as Nina has said, the military game as well. Now, I don't know how many of you um, have the same reaction as I do when I hear uh, Joseph Borrell, the EU high representative, these days talking about the need to speak the language of power. Hmm. And I want to repost, and I'm doing it now, is let's talk about the power of language. That is the important thing. The language we use, the binary choices we force people to, uh, to uh, you know, deal with, those are not the kind of world we want to live in. So I would say to you that there's one area where I really see that Europe, or at least in the past, played a very feminist foreign policy uh, role. That is Iran, the JCPOA, you know, bringing... Um, bringing the different parties together, convincing, persuading uh, through long hours of toil and, you know, uh, labor and a lot of patience, persuading uh, Iran to give up some of its nuclear ambitions. Uh, this was done by women, first by Catherine Ashton and then by Federica Mogherini. Um, and of course, Helga Schmidt, uh, the Secretary General of uh, External Action Service, also played a role. I think the fact that there were women was really pivotal, but I think also the concept they brought Uh, was very pivotal. Now, I also see that in um, Solana's time, Javier Solana, who was the first high representative, recently he took part in a, in, a, in a conversation in which he described how he defused almost single-handedly the crisis over Georgia years and years ago. What did he do? He didn't go around talking the language of power. He actually got on a plane, went to Moscow, and had a discussion with Putin. And, and, and talked him, I guess, out of it, you know, whatever uh, the situation was. And this, in today's world, sounds like, and the immediate reaction was, oh, but that was another time and place, you know, couldn't happen now. I'm sorry, it could happen now. It should happen now. Instead, we've got caught into this kind of a, a bubble where, you know, if you, you're soft, you're Venus, and you can only be a macho Mars, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think our international relations, I'm sorry to say this, but is set by 
old white men who who have a baggage, who are bringing their own patriarchal prejudices and biases into, into our conversation. And when I teach uh, at the College of Europe, I'm teaching Asia-Europe relations. The first thing I tell my students is don't read any books written by old white men on, on Asia. All you'll read about is conflict, dispute, and war. And if there isn't war today, they are looking at a war that's going to come tomorrow, you know? I, I, I think really we're caught in a kind of a stranglehold and feminist foreign policy for me is breaking those shackles, you know? Yeah. So it could really, feminist foreign policy could in the end be a, a real paradigm shift of looking at power relationships internationally in a completely different way. Absolutely. I think that's what we're really talking about, aren't we, Nina? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and if it's not painful to change the way that we're doing foreign policy at the moment, then it's not feminist. Feminist foreign policy needs to imply structural, painful a change, and you will offend people because we offend those in power. As I said, it takes courage and it, it needs very brave women. But, you know, we're seeing this happening. We haven't talked about uh, Jacinda Ardern or what's mm. happening in New Zealand. I mean, she's, you know, remember when she, what, what was a couple of weeks ago, when she named Nanya Mabuta as her foreign minister, the outrage, the uproar in classical foreign policy circles, men, you know, all kinds of discriminatory and insulting statements were made. But, you know, she is a woman who knows what she's talking about, an experienced politician. So, you know, women in power always have to also, I mean, this is another topic, it's, they, they face a lot of abuse, but they should and can dare to be different. Yeah. And many are, many yeah. are. And that not only goes for foreign policy, but for all women in power is that to, in order to be a woman in power, you were supposed to act like a man, be tough. We've had women in power before, like now we have Merkel, um, we had Thatcher, we had these like really, you know, important women in power. But how is Jacinda Ardern maybe a bit different from them? Is she a bit different from them? Is she really choosing for this kind of more feminine approach to international um, power or, or not? I think she is uh, because it's of who she is. I mean, A, she gives another generation. I think Merkel's doing a great job, by the way, um, mm. I have to say. <laughs> we can disagree, Nina. Um, I think Jacinda comes with, comes with less of a baggage. She's younger. She's lived in a world where um, there has been more openness and less open discrimination against women. So she's mm. flourished in that atmosphere. But she's also very courageous. I mean, she's done things that no other uh, leader has done. She, after the Christchurch massacres, she went to the mosque and she put on a headscarf. Mm. And, you know, uh, who in Europe or in, in America would dare to do that in, in today's environment. So she takes, she takes risks, risks and, her, um, and she's very open. She's also very sensible, and I think she's also very science-based at the same time. Hmm. I mean, have, have, do you see her, have, have you seen her videos that she puts on Facebook in the evenings, most weekdays? I mean, she just talks from the heart. Yeah, sort she of. She has a baby. She has a husband. Uh, fireside and, and she, chats. <laughs> sort exactly. Of. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very different style of leadership. Hmm. And I think that is good feminist leadership. And I think the, the, what um, you've just mentioned, her reaction after Christchurch, and I think this is very, this is just such a good example if we compare, for example, now the reaction, reactions to the, um, to the terroristic attacks in, in France and in Vienna is that she really tried to reach out to everyone and to build bridges and to really um, focus on what all of us have in common, no matter what we believe in or where we were born. And in Europe, we see this tendency after a terrorist attack to reinforce this us 
protecting them and that we need to protect our values against them, whoever they are. And this reinforces this patriarchal notion, which we discussed before. And, and I think this made a huge difference of how she reacted to this. But also, and also her approach also included tough decisions. I mean, she did um, change the the laws and how easy it is to access and keep a weapon. So she also made tough decisions, but she did it in a different way than, than what we are used to. And she had a, she had a budget uh, chapter on well-being. So, you know, I mean, that is a concept. Do we have that in a multinational, multi-annual financial framework? Any mention of well-being? I don't think so. So that shows that, you know, you can, in a country, be a leader and have what you're saying, Nina, you know, the skills and the mindset and the courage to be different. Thank you to Nina and Shada for joining me in this podcast episode. Want to know more about feminist foreign policy? Check out the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy's website, www.centerforfeministforeignpolicy.org. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out. Thank you.